I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Today, we're explaining four of Jesus's parables. This is going to be a very short introduction. Sometimes my introductions are longer, not today. This is the Mark series, part 14. We're going verse by verse through the whole gospel of Mark. We do theology, apologetics, deep stuff, simple application, all of the above. And last week, we talked about one parable that was like the key for unlocking the parables of Jesus. We're going to take some things we learned from last week. We're going to apply it to four more parables of Jesus because that's what Mark does. Mark shares this parable of Jesus that's the key, and then it shares four more. Obviously, we're supposed to use the key on the other four. So let's just dig right in. Let's start on the first one. It's Mark 4, verse 21. It says, And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That phrase at the end, anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We've already found that from the parable of the soils that not everyone has ears to hear, right? Because they've got spiritual issues between them and God. They're darkened because they've rejected what God has revealed. So they can't understand what God is revealing. It's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, So if you have ears to hear, you can hear it. The basic idea of this first parable about the lamp and how it's not supposed to be hidden, but it's supposed to be put on display. It's actually not so the, the lamp's put on display, not so you could see the lamp, but so that you could see everything else by the lamp. Interesting difference there when you think about it. Um, but the basic idea is this. Some things are temporarily kept secret that they might be permanently revealed. Why, why do I say that? Because I, I'm taking what Jesus says here in this parable in context with the whole gospel message, with the whole gospel of Mark, and this whole, what they call the messianic secret in Mark, that I think often... the the more liberal theologians, they take this idea of the secret that's being unveiled in Mark and they turn it into whatever secret they want it to be instead of letting it be the one that's right here in the text, which is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the message of Jesus. The Jews were surprised, many of them, when they found out the nature of the kingdom. It was accessed through the death of Messiah, through his atoning death for us, and you put faith in him and you receive salvation. You're brought into his spiritual kingdom and much later is the earthly kingdom set up. That's, That's like the secret revealed. Well, um... Let me talk a little bit about this concept in the scriptures, in the New Testament in particular, about a mystery, a mystery um, that is often brutally abused by heretical groups, this idea of a mystery. They'll make up some weird theology, and then they'll say, well, the Bible talks about there being a mystery. Here's the mystery revealed, whether it's, you know, the, the Watchtower, or if it's Mormonism, or if it's the Mother God Church from Korea, the World Mission Society Church of God. You know, they're like, well, here's the mystery revealed. And they quote these different passages um, that I want to cover real quick and show you that, no, that's, that's not what it means, but it does mean something important. So here's our excursus on the idea of mystery. Excursus, that's a fun word. I just wanted to feel smart. Mark 4.11 says this, Jesus speaking. This was earlier in the same chapter. He was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside... But those who are outside get everything in parables. This is the idea from a Christian perspective. We say, ah, it's that whole in the Old Testament concealed, in the New Testament revealed. That's the mystery. The mystery is all, what was the setup? What was all this stuff that was being set up? What was it going to do when it finally, have you guys ever played the game Mousetrap when you were a kid? You do all the setup, right? And then you finally drop the ball or whatever it is. You trigger the trap somehow. I don't remember. It's been too many years since I actually played this game. And you get to see now what all those things you set up would do. Because I was young enough at that age, I couldn't just look at it and tell what it would do. I had to like play through it and go, oh, the ball falls and then it rolls over here. And then finally, the mouse is trapped. Is that how it ends? I actually don't remember now that I think about it. Okay, but the name sort of suggests it. Um, this, is, this is what the Old Testament does. The Old Testament is this elaborate setup. And the New Testament is the, the unveiling, the revealing of it. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm revealing it to you. I'm revealing it to you. But even even though while I'm present, I'm unveiling these things, a lot of people aren't going to get it. That's what we're getting. We're at the turn of the tide. We're at the change. You know, the the ball has started to roll. And they're starting to see the mechanisms in play. Another verse for this is Romans 16 to show us that the mystery is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's not some weird, kooky, secret religion that was just discovered 15 minutes ago. 
And somebody knocks on your door and they go, well, you may not find what I'm saying in the Bible, but it's a mystery. So it's, I've got the root. No, nah, eh, no, that's not right. Romans 16 says this, verse 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. This is the gospel. The mystery is the gospel. It becomes even more clear in verse 26. But now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Paul, to put it briefly, he's like, there's this beautiful gospel message that is now being spread around the world. That was the mystery hidden in the, in the scriptures of the Old Testament, now revealed through the work of, and person of Jesus Christ. And our job is just to spread that mystery. When you realize this is the mystery, it's the gospel hidden and then revealed, you understand Jesus' parable about the lamp. He relates it to things not, that, were once, that uh, should not be hidden. It should not be hidden. Things that were hidden that ought to be revealed. And then the lamp is not to be hidden. But let's give you another scripture on this. Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10. It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, in Jesus, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. In other words, there was like a, like a deadline where something important was going to happen. The fullness of times here. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, the heavens and things on the earth in him. The mystery revealed is that all the creation, salvation, consummation, that's our, the future eschatological thing, the future thing where God, second coming, all the events that happen after that, that's the consummation. All these things are in Christ. They all center around the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. That's the point. From creation, right? Everything was made through him and for him. To salvation, in him you are saved. He pays for your sin. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To the second coming and the consummation, only those who are in Christ will be part of the new kingdom of God and will inherit all things. How? Because they're in Jesus, because he inherits and he shares it with us. So there's that, that kind of concept. The point here is the mystery is revealed. The mystery is revealed. A lot of people try to act like this mystery is not revealed. It remains unrevealed. Like in Mark, nobody knows it. In the, in the New Testament, even some people think nobody knows it. It's just this continuing mystery. And I, I'm beating this point a little bit on purpose because I'm telling you, cult after cult tries to pull this over on people's heads. They quote a passage that says mystery, and then they go, yeah, that's my new theology, that there's this Korean woman who's, she's God. And she's, and it's on, you know, on, on Song Hong, he was the second coming of Jesus. You just missed it. Well, there was a mystery. He said it was mysterious. I recently been reading a book called Physics of Heaven. This is a strange book that is recommended by those that are part of the Bethel movement. I didn't realize how strange it was till I read it. And they play on this idea. They talk about quantum physics and how you can tap. It's just, it's, to summarize briefly, it's, it's, it's kooky theology and kooky science wrapped up into one is, is what it really is. I hate to say it, but it, 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 it's terrible. This, the book content is horrible. But one thing they do is they play on the idea of mystery. Yeah, this, is, this might sound weird to you Christians in the opening chapters. This might sound weird to you. It's mysterious. Ah, and they quote like Ephesians where it talks about the mystery. And I'm like, that's not what that's about. Like, why would I believe that you're inspired by God when you don't quote his word accurately? Like, I think God knows how to quote his word accurately here. And so this is an, an issue I thought I would want to bring up since it happens to be in Mark, the whole concept of mystery. Um... No, in, in uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. There's that word mystery again. But then it tells us what it is. The mystery is revealed. It's no, it's no longer a mystery. It's, it's known in the first century. He who was revealed in the flesh, Jesus, vindicated by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's all about Jesus, man. The mystery is Jesus and, and the gospel. It's the gospel and Jesus and Jesus and the gospel. And that's it. That's like the whole story right there. That's the mystery. Um, so back to the parable, now that we, we get that idea of the mystery, and that fits in the context. The parable, I'll read one more time. A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? It is not brought to be put on, or is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? The purpose of the lamp is to make it available and seen. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Now you see the hidden and revealed is the gospel in the Old Testament, hidden. It's there, but it's hidden. 
It's woven throughout, revealed in the new. Nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. Jesus is with them right at the turning of the tide. He's beginning to pull the veil off. He's beginning to explain the gospel of the kingdom. Throughout Mark, he tries to correct their wrong perceptions of what the kingdom's going to be like. You think I'm going to rule and reign? Uh, the Son of Man must, must be rejected and die and rise again. Wait, this, that's not what we thought. Yes, well, this is, it's in the Old Testament, but you didn't get it because it was mysterious to you. Well, now I'm revealing it. Those kinds of things. So they're at the time of change. It's going from hidden to known. And their job as disciples, as ours is, is to continue making it known. You're the light. You're like, but wait, Jesus is the light. I mean, like Jesus says it in John 9, 5, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's the light. He should be set up on for everyone to see. We want everyone to see Jesus. True. But then he says this in Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, to the disciples, you are the light of the world. You're the, wait, I thought Jesus was the light of the world. But he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. He gives a similar parable here too. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. The, the idea is Jesus is the light, but he ascended and he sent us into the world to share his light, to share the light of Christ. It's pretty simple, right? We're, share the gospel. You're a Christian, be a light. The truths of Christianity are not meant to be hidden. Christianity by nature, like in its very core nature, we're like, we're like a very um, invitational, evangelistic faith. That's just what we are. Like we see every Christian as one of these sources of light whose hope is to go and share the light of Christ. And I'm not talking about thinking some performance-based thing in your walk with Christ, but just seeing it as part of my DNA, part of me being a Christian is letting, leading others to Christ, you know, God willing, like trying to be that light. At least I don't even make anything happen in their life. I just shine the light, the truth of Christ. I just shine it out to people. And that's like a major goal. He tells them that that's, that's them. So the application of the parable is pretty simple. Be on mission. Be, be on mission. Like don't hide it. Don't hide it. Even though it was hidden through the old, even though maybe Jesus, even his parables was hiding certain things. That was the change of the tide. Now, guess what? You're the lamp. You're the light because he's the light and you're his representative. So put it on display. I think that this is good encouragement for us because it is really easy to find any reason to not share. Um, and I know my tendency is to be timid. That's my natural tendency. And for most of us, I think that we're that way. My tendency is to be timid or to be worried that you're not going to do it perfectly. Um, and so my thought is this, is I'd rather clumsily be shining than not at all. I'd rather be like an imperfect representative of Christ just trying to then to hide that lamp under a basket, as he said. This is, this is the thing you don't do. Don't do that. Put it up. But then people will see me, right? And he's like, yeah, I know. That's kind of the point. Oh, man, but I don't like that. Like, who likes this? Most people don't want to get up on stages. They don't want to be in front of people. They don't want to be noticed for the most part, especially when it's not just to be funny, right? But it's to like be on display that you might show the truth of Christ and be hated perhaps, persecuted, or just, or just laughed at. Um, and uh, the, the application is really simple, really simple. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 27. He says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. So they're at the unveiling moment, right? He's like, I'm revealing it to you that you might reveal it to the world. That's what he's saying. And that's the same thing. When you, when you privately get saved, you're meant to publicly preach the truth of Christ. That's the idea. Um, I do want to give us a caution, though, just on a side note, which is you want to convert people to Christ, you don't need to convert them to your eschatology or your view of, of, of pre-trib, post-trib, you know, seven years. And, and I think Russia fits in the text of Ezekiel right here. Like this has nothing to do with shining your light. You don't need to convert them to all of your convictions and, and the things that feel to you to be the right way to follow Jesus in every particular. You just, it's the gospel, right? It's just the gospel. Keep it pure, keep it simple. And I think that that's advice I share because in the past, I felt like it was all one thing. 
like Christianity is, is one giant thing, right? But the gospel is a thing within that thing. And to keep focused on those central issues in my sharing, that's the focus. That's the thing. I don't need to convince people that evolution is not true in order to bring them to Christ. And if I, if I put that as the obstacle, like before they can follow Jesus, they better renounce evolution. What am I doing? Right? If they think the earth is flat, I don't care. If they don't know Jesus, like I just don't care. It's just a whole different category, you know? And so I, I think that um, it's smart of us to just stay focused on the gospel in, when we're shining that light and be, be hyper-focused and not burden our conversation with a bunch of unnecessary other things. Even if they're important, they're not the gospel. So just my, my own opinion, my thoughts on that. Um, but this also means something that shining the light is not just about being on good behavior because we often think of it this way, I even hear it taught this way. Let them see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Therefore, shining your light is all about you just being a godly person. And others will say, yeah, but you can't share the gospel without being a godly person. You know, the old phrase, which I really dislike, which is preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. This is like telling like in and out, like serve food at all times, use hamburgers if necessary. I'll be like, it's necessary. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean if necessary? Like, it's necessary. Breathe at all times, oxygen if necessary. Like, it's, it's necessary. This is, this is part of the, the thing, right? Be a great parent, have kids if necessary. Wait, hold on. This, these things don't make sense. So you can't do the preach the gospel at all times and not use words. Because the gospel is a message that has to be proclaimed. This is why what he says, what I've told you in the ear, speak on the housetop. So he's saying you've received the gospel privately, personally, but now preach it and share it publicly. So it's just not a false dichotomy. It's like, yes, I need to be a godly example and I need to share the gospel. These are both really important. I can't leave either behind. They're both, you know, really important. These two should hold hands. Let's not make them fight. All right, let's go to the second parable. And he was saying to them, verse 24, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So this is pretty simple. Take care what you listen to. The idea is you're accountable for responding to what you hear, and this is a recurring theme here in Mark. It's like over and over again. You're accountable for responding to what you hear. We can recall the parable of the soils. The different soils received the same message in different ways because of the condition of their own hearts. So he's, he's saying, hey, be careful. Be careful what you listen to. Sometimes as people, we don't differentiate between plain information versus actionable information. You know that pause when, like, say, a public speaker asks the audience to engage and they pause for a second because they're like, wait a minute, does he really want us to respond? You know, you've been there, like, it's, and it's not because something's wrong with you, but you, you just get that pause. You get that moment of like, wait, wait, is this a, I do this to you guys all the time, I think. I guess, wait, is that a rhetorical question? Or does he want me to answer? I don't know. And I don't know either. I'm probably just being a bad teacher if I do that, now that I think about it. I apologize. I'll work on that. But, um, but yeah, sometimes we don't know the difference between the actionable information versus the, um, versus the just informational stuff. You know, the fire alarm goes off and you see the light blinking and you hear the fire alarm and you're like, how long does it take before I think I should do something about this? That's an interesting question. Do you know that there's been full-on research into the psychology of tornado warnings because they're, they're worried about the fact that people just don't evacuate when they're told to evacuate. And so they've done actually psychological research into this, thinking, how do we, how do we word it differently when we get the news, when it says, tornado warning? How do we say it differently to get you to evacuate so you won't be killed? And of course, part of the problem, of course, is a lot of people are like, you made me evacuate three times last year. I'm just done. Um, so I get the problem there. But there's, there's this element of taking action on the information that's, that's actionable. That's the idea. And this is, I think, what Jesus might be kind of getting at. Take care what you listen to. When I read the words of Jesus, and when I read the word of God in the scriptures, it's supposed to be actionable information. But so often, we just get heady with it. And I, I want to be heady. I want to be deep, thoughtful, theological understanding of these things. But that's not, the, that's not where it ends. That's, that's just the process that gets you to the application part. And the application is so, so important. Bible study is not even done until I apply it. 
not like fabricated application where I think every verse must have application in my life. And you start coming up with these like really hokey applications. Have you ever done this? I've done this. I've tried to apply every verse and every chapter has to have direct application in my life. It's like, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that whenever the Bible does apply, I apply it. That's the point. (laughs) Whenever it does, I apply it. Just plain, simple application. Like I'm reading the Psalms and it's like, praise the Lord. Praise him in the heavens. Praise him, all you creatures. Praise him, everybody. And I read the whole psalm. I'm like, that was an interesting psalm. I studied it. I saw the parallelism in there. I saw it was a call and response thing. There was probably, but I didn't like stop and worship. Because like, is that not the application of that of that psalm? Oh, praise him, praise him. Yeah, oh, that was very interesting. Oh, Hebrew poetry is very, well, it's very interesting. I like it, yes. But as I, I just stop and go, I'm going to praise God. I read about a psalmist who's going through hard times and he's like, but yet I will praise him. Yet I will still trust in God, even though I'm going through all this. I will wait on the Lord. And I think, you know, I got some trials too. Lord, I'm going to wait on, I'm going to wait on you, on you. I'm going to trust in you as I go through these things. Like that's the application. It's pretty simple, but don't finish till you get there. Don't finish till you get there. We talked about the soils last week and the application's easy. It, It should, it was obvious to most of us at the end of the study, you're thinking like, yeah, I, I, I see an area in my life where I can apply this thing. And so um, do the application thing. But the focus of, of this is not just Bible study application. It's a gospel application. Because the parables are more focused upon the gospel message than they are just upon sanctification or growing as a Christian. So it's about the gospel. And the application here is, you've heard the gospel. Have you responded to it? There are many who find the gospel interesting. Perhaps they find Christianity compelling. They think, yeah, it may well be true. But there's no response in their lives to the gospel of Christ. And that is a dangerous place to be. Take care what you hear. That's the message of Jesus. And then let's read verse 24. And we'll try to see how does this idea of taking care what you hear, um, how does this apply to the rest of this parable? Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and to whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This was actually a known saying at the time. We, we find this in other places in ancient first century Jewish literature. The idea is um, used often with grain. And so your standard of measure, you know, if, if you use... If you cheat the measure, you're gonna get you 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 should get you'll get cheated too because using that same scale it'll come back on you in the same way. But it becomes like a proverbial thing that how you respond is how you'll be responded to. That's the idea. Reciprocity is the term. Reciprocity. Yet it's in a magnified sense. Jesus is using it in a magnified sense because he's saying, "Hey, and more will be given you besides." There's like an uh, an elevation of the results. The consequences are high. For whoever has to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. So there's this real extreme, two extremes that are being described here. Jesus in his parables often gives extremes to really draw out the point. And we'll want to know that later when we get to the fourth parable. So in a, applying to hearing, we want to hear receptively, receptively. We want to hear actionably. And if you don't hear well, you measure poorly what you hear. You evaluate it lowly, even though it's the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you evaluate it like this low thing you can laugh at or ignore or be like, well, maybe when I get older, like that kind of attitude, um, then you will be treated that same way. And you'll even further move in towards blindness, towards a darkness of mind. Now, I find that people in repeated rejection of the gospel, they get harder and harder, generally speaking, and harder. Not that there's no hope for them, because many people who've been hard for years have turn their lives to Christ. How'd everything change? So if you do hear well, if you respond well, you measure it well, you, you evaluate the gospel as, oh, it's this weighty thing. It's worth more than gold. It's, it's the most important thing I've ever heard. Um, you'll get more, more spiritual revelation, more insight, not only the understanding of the gospel because you responded to what God revealed, but you'll go deeper into Christ and deeper into these spiritual truths. Um, there are things that, that Christians experience in their walk with God and their understanding of scripture in their life in Christ, that they find almost impossible to even try to translate to a non-believer. Because it's like, it just doesn't work. I don't know how to tell you. You just gotta, you have to, you have to follow Christ. I remember when I rode a motorcycle. My friend, uh, I briefly, for like six months, I rode a motorcycle. A little Ninja 250, like, couldn't even get on the freeway with it. 
but it was like that was back when gas was like creeping up to five bucks a gallon and i was like so uh, so i rode this motorcycle then i stopped because i knew i was going to die um <laughs> true story um uh, anyhow i'm riding this motorcycle and i'm i'm like I, I go to the school and i like just teach myself how to ride a motorcycle so i crash it of course <laughs> but you know, i'm like in my old elementary school parking lot you know riding it around it just fell nothing nothing got broke or anything but um like four miles an hour i hit a curb and fell stop looking at me like that but everybody falls when they're learning how to ride probably um but the uh the thing was afterwards i was like this is fun man dude this thing's like having a roller coaster strapped to you this is awesome and my buddy who had rode for a while uh my buddy ben he's he goes he looks at me right in the eye and he just goes now you know <laughs> and i was like cracking up because i was like that's exactly it you wouldn't know unless you rode one of these things what it's like the, the, the mix of exhilaration and the fear of death, you know, it's just, <laughs> I do not recommend motorcycles if you live anywhere near us, because you're, you're going to die, you're going to die, people will look right at you and just run you over, anyhow, um, the gospel, there's a parallel here, <laughs> the gospel's like this, you present it to people, you offer it to people, you tell them of the grace and the goodness of Christ, but until they accept it, they don't know. And when they accept Christ and they see you next time, they're like, oh, God is awesome. It's it. And you look at him and you go, now you know. Now you know. To him who has more will be given. And to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That's the idea. And so Jesus, I think, is explaining that. So the, uh, the gospel, uh, the point is when we encounter God's word, preached or read or whatever, shared, we're at a turning point and how we respond dictates what happens next. The blind are accountable for their blindness because they entered into it through rejecting what was revealed. You didn't, you didn't want to see what you saw, so now you see nothing. And those who, who did want to see it, now they see more. That's the idea. So be mindful of how you respond. If you feel your heart getting cold or hard to the word of God, cold or hard to the teaching of scripture, cold or hard to the truth of the gospel, it's like almost irritating when people talk about the gospel, yet you think you're a Christian or whatever. That's a dangerous, dangerous sign. Because how are you measuring what you're hearing? You're weighing it as some weak, beggarly thing. It's not the glorious gospel. Like if the gospel is not glorious, there's some crazy, serious spiritual war going on in your heart. So you better address that before the Lord is the counsel I would have. So the two points that stand out so far in the second parable are this, and then we'll do the third one. Everything's going to be revealed. That's actually from the first parable, right? Everything will be revealed, but, but, and our job's to shine it and all that, but the the revelation of all these things doesn't mean everyone's going to get saved because it depends on how they receive it. All will be revealed, but not all will be received. So go share the gospel, and I'll say this, be okay with people responding however they respond. This is like a real liberating thing for us. Accept it, reject it, I have to be okay with them responding however they respond. My job is sharing it. My job isn't making things happen in people's lives. The, The light comes into a room and it creates light. It doesn't force people to look around or see. Third parable, number three. And, uh, and uh, he was saying, verse 26, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. So a, another analogy about farming. There's going to be another one as well after this, but he casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. These are interesting elements that are here. Um, The sickle and the harvest and the soil and the the guy who just goes to sleep and the crops like growing all on its own. That's interesting. Um, And the soil, it says, produces crop by itself. That's a focus of this parable. That the, the, the crop comes up. There's a guy that sows, but, but then it's like his job's done. And now the soil's got to do the work to make this thing bear fruit. Now that sounds consistent with the first parable we heard. Right? The, the four soils. This is emphasized even more perhaps because the farmer checks out. Which at least one comment. I'm not a farmer, so sorry. But I don't know what to make of this. But at least one commentary I read was suggesting that this is not normal farming. You don't go to you don't sow it, go to bed and ignore it until it's time to put the, the sickle in. You know, you, you wanna 
uh, I don't know, take care of the crop, you know, go and play music to it and talk to it. I don't know what they do, right? They're farmers, but you want to take care of the, the wheat. And perhaps that, that's the case, in which case it would be even a stronger like contrast where Jesus, his parable is not telling you how things really normally are. The point of the parable is not like, here's how everything normally is. That's not the point of parables. It's rather, let me tell this story that you'll, you'll feel familiar to you, even though maybe you've just first heard it, because you, you understand these things. But I'm going to highlight elements. I'm going to push certain points, because that's where the lesson is. So the lesson seems to be the guy's not involved with the growing of the crop. He just plants the seed. That seems to be a focus. The, the soil makes it himself. The growth is progressive. And you're like, duh, growth progressive, Mike. Like, have you ever planted anything? Like, yes, I planted things, tomatoes, and ate them. And it's progressive, duh. But the point is that Jesus, he emphasizes this, and he must emphasize it for some reason. I don't think he wastes his words in his parables. I think each element, what we learn from the parable of the soils, is each element corresponded to some point Jesus was making. Right? The birds, oh, Satan comes and takes the seed away. The four soils, four different kinds of people. The rocks represent specific things. The thorns, thistles, they represent specific things. So here he's focusing on the growth is progressive. So evangelism, that's the sower. Let's talk about the points here. Um, Evangelism is the sower. They toss out the seed. This is evangelism. This is consistent with Jesus' key to the parables, right? The sower is, is the word. It, or the, the seed is the word going out into people's lives. That's evangelism, tossing out the seed. There's a lot of criticism about how people evangelize. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of sharp opinions about how you ought to and ought not to evangelize. I think the bigger umbrella point is you ought to evangelize. And I'm a lot less critical about exactly how people do it, just so long as that gospel message is central. And so if it's a guy preaching on the side of the street, I'm not like one of those unwise people who goes up to them and they're like, well, I'm a Christian and I don't like the flavor coming off of that guy on the street corner. He's loud. And so then they go and they're like, as a Christian, I have to stand here and fight against that other Christian who's trying to share the gospel. And I'm like, if you've ever done that, just repent and don't do it again. <laughs> this is not wise, right? Because you would have been doing that to John the Baptist. You would have been doing that to Paul the Apostle. You would have been doing that to all the prophets of the Old Testament. I'm like, this is, this is not the right. But rather, I'm just like, I'm glad they're doing it. Maybe they could do it better. You want to help them do it better? Go help them. <laughs> Go get involved, you know? Go and try it. Um, that would be the idea. So I, I don't think you should criticize tactics exactly. Don't make the mistake of blaming the seed or the sower for the soil's issues. And I hear something you don't hear with evangelism. Evangelism tactics are often about what gets results. But what do we mean by results? Because we can't see hearts. So we often mean numbers of hands raised or just even lower results, not even people making a commitment to Christ, just them saying, I enjoyed that conversation. And we consider that successful evangelism. So their enjoyment of evangelism is successful evangelism. And I just feel like we're just a little off base here. The point of evangelism is evangelism. It's the gospel of Christ going out into people's lives. And I'm not going to blame if someone gets up and they share the truth of Christ and, and they, get, they get killed for it, I don't blame the guy who shared. That's the soil's problem. That's the division of responsibility that we see here. The sower just sows, man. It's the soil that determines how they receive. As long as my gospel's pure, I shouldn't worry about those things. So the soil's job is to receive and to grow, and it's a progressive growth. And I think a lesson here is, don't evaluate fruit when you're planting seeds. If you share in the gospel and you witness and you minister to people and you share the truth of Christ and you look five minutes later, you get up in the middle of the night, you want to watch and see, does it sprout? Does it sprout? Does it sprout? What's interesting is the sower just goes to bed here. And there's an element of this where I go, yeah, you, you can't always be looking backwards when you're trying to move forward with sharing the gospel with people. And there's that you just you share and you, and you realize it might be five years from now when that person comes to Christ. It might be 20 you might have just been one tiny little piece in their story. And so you just share and you don't stress. And please, Christian, don't stress yourself out over them responding right in the moment as you're sharing. Just plant the seed and let the soil do whatever it's going to do with it. I think that that's just some wisdom because it's a progressive growth. This is a nice balance. This is a nice balance. Um, so we don't think it's all over with the initial response. Maybe they initially responded harshly to the gospel, but later they received it. 
that may well be the case for some people. And so we, uh, we have a nice balance there. Okay, then the harvest. What is the harvest part about? Um, in verse 29, Jesus says, When the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, the harvest is the end of the age. This isn't a parable Jesus explains. The, uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the synopsis is this, that true and false believers, wheat and tares, two different kinds of plants, they grow up together, some sown by the Lord, some sown by the enemy. In Matthew 13, he, he explains this. He says, And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And the, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Everything has a corresponding element, right? Every element has like a, a real thing that corresponds to it. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Every person, everything seems to have an element. So, um, if that's the case with the parable of the tares, and it's another, the only other parable where Jesus really thoroughly explains, so we could use this to help us understand these other ones. The harvest, then, would, it would be implied, is the end. The end of the age. So, which is good news for some and bad news for others, uh, but it has us looking to the total fruit of the gospel in the world, not just that one moment of evangelism, because if it's about that final harvest, and we realize we're part of something bigger, than what we're doing that day, if that makes sense. But notice how connected these parables are so far. They're very connected. The seed is consistently the gospel. The sower is either Jesus or those who are continuing his work by, by giving out the gospel later on. This is, this is interesting. This will help us with understanding the last parable because this is where the debate is. There's two debates on this parable. One is going to be an apologetics issue and the other one is going to be, what are the birds? What are the birds? And we'll talk about this. So verse 30. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? Now just a reminder, a, a parable is a comparison of known stuff to unknown stuff. It's like parallel truths. It's just giving an example, uh, it, you know, in analogy. It was always pretty much about God's kingdom, which was not well understood by the Jews. And Jesus was trying to confront their bad expectations with what he was really going to do in the world. Verse 31. So here's what it's like. It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Okay, first let's deal with the apologetics debate. The apologetics moment is this. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world. It is not the smallest seed in the world. And Jesus says it's the smallest seed in, of all, on the soil, smallest seed on the, on the earth. I think Luke, one of, the gospels, uh, one of the gospels, says that. So they go, ha, Jesus was uninformed and Jesus was wrong about a simple botany thing. Right? Just the size of the seed. What's worse, they would say, is this was even known to the Jews at the time. They knew mustard seeds weren't the smallest. An orchid seed is much smaller. Uh, you know, celery seed is smaller. There's probably some other seeds that are smaller. I don't know. I haven't really looked up to all the seeds in the world to figure out the answer to this question, but this is what we hear. So here's what you can often do when you encounter these kinds of issues, right? You, you can take options. Take stock of your options. What are the possible solutions to this problem? What are the possible solutions? I mean, one option some people would take is they just say, yeah, so Jesus was wrong about the size of the seed. You know, he's, he's human and he's divine and he didn't have constant access. He wasn't accessing omnipotent or omniscience at all times. And so there's an option some people take. Most of us are pretty uncomfortable with that option, I think. And I, understandably, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with jumping straight to Jesus was wrong. I'd like to take stock of some other options first, <laughs> if I can. Although some people, that's the first option they jump on because that's just their tendency. Um, okay, so here's another option. It's possible that it's the smallest seed of the ones that Jewish farmers would actually grow in their fields. That they simply didn't grow orchids in their fields because they're farmers. They're not interested in those things. But as far as the ones they would grow for food or for their supplies, the kind of stuff that they would actually sow in their fields, in their small, generally small fields, mustard seed was one of them. Uh, some uh, commentaries agree with this. They, they say that, you know, yeah, they would grow food, not flowers. And so Jesus, he's giving a farming illustration. He's not interested in every plant on earth. He's interested in the ones you use for farming. Um, I don't, I can't confirm 
whether the mustard seed was the smallest that the Jews would use in their farming. I'm not sure how to confirm this because finding out information about typical Jewish farming habits in the first century is not the easiest thing in the world. But it's certainly a possibility, right? And if you took Jesus' statement as being a first century record of first century Jews in Palestine or in Israel, you would have this as actual evidence that, yeah, obviously it is the smallest seed that they would use because he talks about it like it is. And if you found some other first century text that talked about the mustard seed as the smallest one they used, you would say, ha, ah, we've confirmed it. Well, the New Testament here could be evidence for that as well. Um, there's another option, though, a different route we could take, which is to just say it's proverbially the smallest. Uh, Jesus is, it's a proverb. It's just a proverb. You know, he may have been exaggerating what farmers do and don't do when he was like, he just goes to sleep and it grows all its own tone. And they, it's like the guy doesn't do anything. He doesn't like throw a bucket of water on the field or everything. No, he doesn't do anything. Um, well, that may be an exaggeration to make his point. He may be exaggerating here. He does this. He uses a mustard seed proverbially as well in Luke 17, 6. He says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the seed. Yeah, and it would be, uh, it would obey you. So the mustard seed is taken as a proverbially tiny thing. You know, we do this in our culture. We, we, we say big as an elephant, right? I use it. Does that mean that elephants are the largest animals we've, we're aware of? Oh, brontosaurus, they were way bigger than elephants, Mike, you fool. You know, and it's like, well, I'm just using the biggest an elephant. It's like a proverb. We just talk this way. We're not worried about it being the biggest thing out there. Well, blue whales exist today and everybody knows it. Mike's dumb. He doesn't know about blue whales. Like, it's no, come on. We're using it proverbially. That's a possibility as well. Um, and you might say, well, then why didn't he use celery seed? It's smaller. If you use a proverbial small seed, why doesn't... Well, the thing is, a celery plant isn't exactly big. Jesus wants something that starts small and ends big. So he picks the best plant available for that, the mustard seed. And it's not like our modern mustard. We're not talking... Have you ever planted mustard? It's like, boop. <laughs> like, well, it's not very big, man. This thing grew quick. That was cool, but it's not very big. Um, this is talking about a different kind of mustard plant, it seems. So um, this... It was the smallest farming seed, or at least it may have been the smallest farming seed. Seems like it was. Um, and it grew into a plant that could get up to like about 12 feet high. And so birds did nest. It, well, you wouldn't consider it a tree though normally. You wouldn't normally use the word tree to describe it. A big shrub, you know, a large shrub. Shrubbery is what it is. In support of this idea that it's proverbially the smallest, here's a, here's a couple points. Jesus often uses hyperbole. If anyone wants to come after me, he's got to hate his father and mother. Now, some think they really do think that Jesus is just off his rocker here. And others understand what he's actually saying because he uses extreme statements to drive a point in. He doesn't actually want you to hate your parents. right? Love your father and mother. Somewhere else he says, love your parents. That's, that's one of the commands. Love them and honor them. Well... Um, here, he may just be using hyperbole. He does this frequently in scripture. Jesus exaggerates the size of the mustard uh, seed, or de-exaggerates it. Maybe ex ex exaggerates that it's the smallest thing on earth. But then he also seems to exaggerate the size of the plant that it grows out of it as well. And they would have known this. It's not like they're dummies. They know that they're all familiar with these terms and with these things. Because he says that it becomes... Um, larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Well, it did grow big enough and birds do actually hang out in it. They like the seeds, they eat the seeds and they do hang out in it. But this may have been that, that sense of exaggeration. We read the parallel gospels. It even calls it a tree when it wasn't technically a tree. It, and it describes it as being almost like bigger than it really would be, even though it could get fairly large. The point is, in the parable... In the story, in the analogy, it's a tiny, tiny thing becoming a really big thing. So let's talk then about what it means. I don't, in other words, I don't think that we've like lost the inerrancy of scripture with this text. Uh, we have a couple really good viable options for how to understand it. So we'll come to the birds after in a minute, but what's the mustard plant all about? It seems simple. It starts small, it gets big. Okay. You're with me. You're smart people. You, you, you figured this much out, you know, quite a while ago. It starts small, it gets big. But I like how um, R.A. Cole, in his commentary on Mark, he puts it this way. So I'm going to read a little paragraph. 
The concept of the reign of God was still not clear to the disciples, who seemed to have consistently looked for an establishment of the messianic kingdom in their lifetime, like a physical kingdom on earth. Witness the selfish request of James and John. Remember, let us, let us be one at your right, one at your left, in John 10, 35. And the eager question asked of Jesus by the disciples, even after the resurrection, as to whether now was to be the time for introducing the kingship, the kingdom, excuse me. Acts 1, is now, are you going to do it now, Jesus? And he goes, it's not for you to know the times and season. It's not even for you to know. But go wait in Jerusalem and you'll be my witnesses throughout the world. See, our agenda is evangelism. It's not setting up this kingdom on earth. The small beginnings and slow, pervasive growth of the kingdom were beyond either the patience or the understanding of the disciples, but both were well illustrated by the growth of the tiny mustard seed known to them all. So the seed is the kingdom. It's the kingdom of of, of heaven. This mustard seed going into the ground starts tiny, ragtag group of disciples, rejected by the leaders of his time, crucified. And then it just grows and grows and grows and grows, and now it is this international body of Jesus Christ in every nation, all under, under the sun, all over the world. We have believers following Jesus, and here he was in the first century talking to his disciples, telling them, start small, but it'll grow really big, really, really, really big. And this is actually what's happened. In other words, this is like a prophetic statement from Jesus about the future of his kingdom. The Old Testament does this too. Multiple times, it talks about how the Messiah will turn Gentiles around the world to the God of Israel. We lose the impact of this amazing prophetic thing because we're just sitting in the fulfillment of it. We're used to it. But it was kind of a big thing for a first century Jew to be like, yeah, I'm going to change the world. But it's going to start real small. And it's going to grow. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal, I think. So geek out on that just a little bit if you would. Okay, let's talk about the debate. What is the birds? What are the birds? There's three, three options, three major options I hear from commentators. And these are the three options. One, the birds, they're nothing. Don't worry about it. It's just, it's just saying the plant's big so birds can stick it, you know, go in it. To the mean, but I'm like, but wait a minute, man. Did you read the parables of Jesus? He's like, oh, the birds are Satan. What if I said don't worry about those birds? In the earlier parable, what if I said, don't worry about like what the harvest is or what the tares mean? Or it's like, you don't just chuck out pieces of parables. We should probably analyze these things. A second option is that Gentile inclusion is in mind and the birds represent Gentiles coming into the body of Christ. And I'll share a couple Old Testament passages people use in support for this. It, it, it's actually a convincing case. Um, and the third possibility is that they're evil characters entering the church in some sense evil characters who are not really part of the church, but they're entering the church as it grows really large. And I'll explain some of the reasoning for that view, and then I'll share my view. I'm, I'm going to favor towards the third view, but I do feel a little bit of pull towards the second view, so I'm just going to share some of the points that are made. So here's the second view. The first view, by the way, forget it, nah, I, I'm going to forget that we're supposed to forget it, because Jesus' parables seem to have corresponding realities to these elements, and I don't, I don't get that. So the second view, Gentile inclusion. There's a couple possible Old Testament connections to Jesus' parable. There's things we read about in the Old Testament that sound kind of like the parable of Jesus. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he has a, a dream, and he's like a tree, and the, the, the nations that are lodging in the tree are like birds and beasts under the tree, under the protection of Babylon. So Babylon protecting other nations or helping other nations, they're like animals in the tree. That's interesting. So this would lean towards the Gentile inclusion view. It's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. Um, Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 23, another similar statement is made. I'll just read it to you. On the high mountains of Israel, I will plant it. It was going to be this like cedar, this clipping from a cedar tree where Jesus, God's planting it and it's going to grow. Israel's going to, re, going to regrow is the idea. So on the high mountains of Israel, I will plant it and it may bring, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. And it seems to be implying these birds are other nations being helped now by Israel. So Israel, similar illustration as with Babylon. They grow large, they're blessed, and they become a blessing to others. Ezekiel 32 uses similar language of Assyria, a whole different nation. 
So Ezekiel 30, um, or is it 31 here? 31, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, about Assyria, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its boughs became many. Those are branches, right? Boughs. And its branches long because of many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. And here we're given the interpretation. The birds are there. The animals are there. All great nations are under its shade. That's the interpretation of the birds and the animals. So this would seem to be a pretty good case that what Jesus is doing, he's, he's sort of drawing from Old Testament imagery in this parable to say, hey, as the, as the kingdom grows, Gentiles will be included. And that would work even with the history of the church. Um, there's a couple concerns with this. So I'll share number three. View number three, and this is the view I would tend to lean towards. I don't have a problem with either view because they both actually fit what has actually happened with the, with the gospel and with the kingdom of Christ. But, um, but I do think the third view is more likely. So the third view, evil characters entering the church. Um, one reason why we don't, um, don't say number three is because birds are always evil. Like I don't hold this view that birds are always evil in scripture. I'm like the Holy Spirit descended as an evil bird. No, a dove, right? Like, and it's considered a positive and wonderful thing. I also don't think that certain kinds of animals are actually evil in the real world, except for cockroaches. <laughs> the obvious exception to that rule. Um, no, we, we, we don't have this, this idea that there's like, it has to be evil in every scenario. These, these animals are, um, that's not the case. I don't think, but we do have a good reason to think in this case, these birds are bad guys. And that is the parable of the sower right there in Mark chapter 4. I'm not even going to Ezekiel. I'm not going to Daniel. I'm in Mark 4. Jesus tells a long parable where birds represent Satan taking away the gospel from people's minds. He tells us this is the key. How will you understand all parables if you don't know this? Then he explains that parable to them to help give us understanding of all parables. Later in the same chapter, he gives an illustration where in the same chapter, seed is consistently the gospel. The sower is consistently someone sharing the gospel. The plant growing is consistently people's response to the gospel. Well, the bird in the first parable and the last parable is probably similar. And the bird is Satan, which could include demonic forces, Satan's entire kingdom, you know, and that is a possibility. Now, I know this, this might bother you, so let me continue. Just stay with me here. I'm just building a case. Just building a case. I don't want to go too far with this. Because people do go too far with this. So then the parable of the sower, I would say close context, immediate context, trumps distant context for interpreting a passage. The close context of Jesus' own parables has a stronger indicator for what Jesus is saying than the very distant context of Ezekiel. Even if they would have thought of Ezekiel when he was saying it, he had just give, given them a key to unlock the parables. So this is why I would say close concept, context trumps distant context. Um, also, there's another reason why I would think this isn't Gentile inclusion, and that's because birds aren't branches. Birds aren't branches, yet Gentiles, we're part of the plant. I'm part of the mustard plant here. I'm included in the gospel. I'm, I'm actually part of it, whereas these trees lodging, or these birds lodging in the plant aren't actually part of it. So birds aren't branches. And in this context, we can, we can parallel this with the wheat and the tares. The parable of the wheat and the tares is that there are these real believers and false believers growing up amongst each other, but the tares are never confused with wheat. Not in the mind of God, obviously. Humans sometimes can't tell when they're real young and they're growing. So these two different plants growing up alongside. So that, that's consistent with, I know, it sounds weird, right? Like, sort of like evil forces are somehow entering into the church. That seems to be what the passage is indicating based on just like, trying to be unbiased. Nobody really is, but try to be unbiased and look at it and build the case. I lean towards number three. Um, so what's the implications of all this? Um, that the church as it grows, as it becomes large, as it becomes spread throughout the world, that the enemy tries to infiltrate and be part of it. And I'm like, that has absolutely happened. Like this is absolutely, without a doubt, this is absolutely church history. There's no shadow of a doubt here. It fits history. There's the real church, and there's often our confusion as we look at the visual 
the visible sort of representatives sometimes of the church through history because they end up just being powerful people who call themselves Christians. And they're the representatives of Christianity. Like I look, I would look years ago, I haven't watched TV in a long time, but I would look at TBN and you look at it and you'd be like, this is not Christianity. Like these are the birds in the branches. Or you'd see in church history, kings of countries coming in and trying to tell the church how they have to live and follow Jesus and trying to change things. And I'm like, these are the birds in the branches perhaps. Because once the body is so big, Satan wants to infiltrate. If you can't beat him, join him. This may be what we're reading about here, and it fits what I see. Um, often, we see these visible leaders, leaders, they're just the, the media people, the people that are you know visible. And we look at them and we're like, what kind of Christianity even is that? And to genuine Christians following Jesus, you're like, that just looks so foreign to my life of following Jesus. It frustrates you because you're like, can someone be a good example out there, please? Can you represent true Christianity? Because this is just kooky. And I see, I, I see this and I realize that's not just my experience. That's the experience of so many believers. Like the true body of Christ who looks up and goes, what is that? What is that nonsense? And um, I think this may be the idea of these birds. The kingdom of Christ will overcome, but we can expect that as the kingdom grows and more people are added to it, there's the infiltration that, that tries to be there. But we're not to be paranoid. Um, I think there may be a parallel passage with another parable I will offer an interpretation for that I think a lot of people, even in our own camp, are going to disagree with me on. But I think this is what it means. So I'm just going to present it to you for your thoughts. And that is the parable of the leaven. So let me read this, this passage from Matthew. Matthew 11, verse 31 through 33. He offers the parable we just read and the parable of the leaven side by side. And I, I think I lean this way. That... Um, yeah, I'll just read it. So verse 31 of Matthew 13. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. Now, that's actually a massive amount of, of flour. That's a huge amount of flour. And she hid this, this bit of leaven, worked it through, and it got through all the flour. What's weird is with the leaven parable, he says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Now, leaven we normally think of as a bad thing. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Be unleavened, 1 Corinthians tells us. This is, this is leaven like it's sin. But there was one offering in Israel where leaven was actually offered, so it's not always considered bad. In the context, it, and I lean this way, I'm open, but I lean this way, it looks to me like leaven, just like the massive quick growth and huge growth of a, of a tiny seed growing really big, leaven is this little thing you put in the loaf and it makes it, it, makes it huge. A loaf is like the world. So Christianity is going to be growing massively through the world. That's, that's the vision I see in this passage. The radical, radical growth of the kingdom of God, which you took totally for granted because it's just always been there your whole life. And you don't realize like what a work of the Holy Spirit this was to um, fulfill the Great Commission. So um, that's at least my understanding of those, of those parables. Now, how eschatology or our view of the future events, how we view eschatology can totally change your interpretation of this parable. And this is where people battle. Because they, they're like, Mike, you just gave an amillennial interpretation instead of the premillennial interpretation. And I'm like, I don't think it has to do with either of that stuff. So let me explain. Because people go way too far. Some people, the premillennial people, will perhaps, just some, will suggest that, uh, and I'm premillennial, but they'll, some of them will suggest that, um, that church growth is therefore bad. Because as the church grows, the birds come and lodge in the branches. And so... Satan is really in charge of the church. And I'm just saying, like, birds are no birds. Satan's not in charge, right? He's just lodging. Like, he's just trying to influence and, and get involved. But Christ said, you know, the gates of Hades will not prevail, right? I will build my kingdom. And he's building it, and he's going to prevail. Um, so I don't think church is, growth is bad. Um, I, Pastor Chuck would say that this, this um, mustard seed growing represents unnatural growth. It shouldn't grow that big. It's unnatural growth. And Jesus' point is, as I recall from his old studies, his point is that this is bad growth. You don't, we don't want this kind of growth. So it has to do with Constantine, you know, joining the church to the state and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't think it's about these things. 
I think the growth is good. The birds might be bad, but the growth is good. The growth is good. So the mustard plant, um, it does actually grow really big. So I don't even think it's necessarily unnatural growth, even if Jesus implies some exaggeration in it for the sake of the parable. Because what about this is bad? Nothing. I can't think of anything bad about the gospel growing in the world and spreading to people's lives. That's a wonderful thing. Now, the amillennial approach are the people who think like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to establish a worldwide church, almost like a church government throughout the world. We're going to spread throughout the world and kind of take over. That's some people, their view, and I don't have that view of eschatology. I think his kingdom is not of this world, otherwise the servants would fight. And we, we spread the gospel. That's what we do. And when Jesus comes back, he establishes the kingdom. That's, the, that's what I think is consistently in the New Testament. But there are those who think this and they go way beyond the parable because what they do is they think, oh, this mustard seed, the idea is we're growing, we're going to take over the world as Christians and this leads into various problems as we try to establish theocracies that don't have God at the head because it's not a true theocracy unless God's actually in charge, right? But if you, if you say I've got a theocracy, and God's not really the one in charge, all it means is you can guarantee these leaders are going to overstep their bounds because they think they're going to speak for God now. But if God's not doing that, then that's, that's a bad thing in my opinion. So I just think we're going way beyond the parable there. Um, we shouldn't view it like that. Big growth does not equal political earthly kingdom. So I think that's still clearly, clearly done at Jesus' second coming, pictured in Daniel with this rock that comes and smashes the kingdoms of the world and grows. And that's... That's when Christ returns. So here's a summary of what we did today. Of these four parables that we covered. Um, summary of points from parable one. The gospels received differently depending on hearts. I guess these are five points I will share with you. Number two, um, it's to be shared with all people, like that light. It's um, God's big plan. This is the light one. The first point was from the uh, soils, parable of the soils. It's different than what they expected so we ought to know it doesn't meet expectations. It's a mystery being revealed. And this is so, you got to know this if you're witnessing to Jewish people. You're going to have to constantly deal with this fact that the Old Testament's a mystery being revealed in Christ. And they have expectations about the Messiah that aren't actually necessarily biblical, oftentimes. Third point, third parable, if you count the parable of the soils as the first one. We're accountable and judged on how we receive the kingdom. We're accountable and judged on how we receive the kingdom. Now, if you were the Jewish listener to Jesus, you would have thought, you get the kingdom because you're Jewish. End of story. And he's telling them, it depends on how you receive this message. Do you see how he's shifting to the gospel as being the thing that you get included with, not, not, your, uh, not how you're born? Number four, um, growth is gradual and natural. That's that guy, he's sleeping and it just grows overnight while he's sleeping. So it's not on you who shares the gospel. There's nothing forced in the gospel message. There's nothing forced in the preaching of Christ. It's just presented and you let it hit the soil and do what it's going to do. People don't, if you force Christianity on someone, it wasn't Christianity because there's nothing forced. We're just tossing the seed out. And then five, it starts small. It gets huge. It gets huge, but not cataclysmic like they thought. It was a slow growth, a natural organic growth of the true body of Christ spreading throughout the world, which we've all been witness to and it, as it continues to do. One last thing I'll, I'll point out, which is this. Seed must die. And Jesus points this out. He goes, the seed has to die. It's one of his parables. The seed has to die that it might bring forth. And so the son of man, he was going to die for our sins to bring us to life, to bring us into the gospel. So there's an element of this that's just throughout the parables. This idea that, that Christ's death and resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. And you as a Christian dying to yourself may be involved in even your witnessing and your sharing with others. And it may even be the cost. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing. He concludes the whole idea, the whole section with verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them. So far as they were able to hear, that is that brought up again, our ability to hear. And he did not speak to them with a, without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And the implication, I think, for us is this. Um, Watch out if you're limited by your own hearing ability. It's a slightly unsettling reality that I might right now have a hard heart to the things God's showing me right now. And I don't want you to be paranoid. I just want you to be aware. Right? There's like a proper awareness that we ought to have and just say, okay, is my heart yielded? I, or do I just assume that I'm spiritually good at all times? Because I know that's not true with me. 
And it's probably not true with you either. And so I have to constantly, constantly keep coming back to the cross. Keep coming back to the Lord with that humility. God, open my heart, open my eyes. I want to see, I want to hear, I want to have ears to hear. I want to have ears to hear. Um, yeah, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Pray that it would dig deep into our hearts like that good seed that grows up and, and bears fruit. And we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be evangelizing in the name of Jesus Christ, to just spread out the word and share the truth, the simple gospel, and let it fall where it may and let people receive it or reject it as they do because it's not our job. Our job is to shine the light, to share the truth, and to uh, let you do the work of the Holy Spirit that you're doing in people's lives. We pray that you would stir up more and more believers to be light in these times. In Jesus' name, amen.